0: Bow with me as we ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, we now turn our attention um, to the preaching and the hearing of your word. And I ask, Father, that you would grant me the grace of your spirit to speak the truth and to proclaim the truth to your people, that they may be strengthened and built up that they might be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. Father, I know that it is not in man's wisdom that these, these things can be accomplished, but only in your wisdom by the means you have ordained, which is through the preaching and the teaching and the hearing of your word. And so I ask and we ask, Father, that you would bless us now through it. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, amen. So last time we were together, we were uh, looking at Acts 23. And so in that passage, in that chapter... Uh, The Lord, you'll remember, stood by Paul after he was arrested and he was facing uh, what was more of an informal trial uh, before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem uh, that the Roman Tribune called because of the uproar that arose. And the Lord gave Paul a word of comfort and a word of promise. Uh, He told Paul to take courage For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So he's giving him a word of comfort, he's giving him a word of promise, and he's saying, don't worry, Paul, you will bring the gospel also to Rome. And so we saw in that chapter how God sovereignly brought Paul safely to Caesarea with the accompaniment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. A plot to kill Paul was discovered, it was disclosed and and the Lord safely delivers Paul to Caesarea. And so that chapter really highlighted the need for us as believers to recognize God's sovereign hand in all of life's circumstances and for us to depend on him for all things, to remember that God is working out his will and his saving purposes through all of it. And so our passage this morning in Acts 24, you you can turn there now if if you haven't already. Paul is is now facing another uh, more formal trial before the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea. And so all that God had done was exactly what he said to Paul he would do. And God opened the door now to the evangelization of Rome in this more formal setting, just as he said he would. God here is fulfilling his purpose for Paul to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, before uh, the Roman world. And so, as with Paul's other trials, we're going to see here accusations that are leveled at Paul in verses 1 to 10. That's going to be followed by, because the end of this book really is trial after trial, okay? So, we're just going to see many trials. But, but here again, accusations against Paul, followed by Paul's response in verses 10 to 21. And at that point, Luke then concludes the chapter, and I'll say more about this after uh, we read the passage, but he concludes the chapter by drawing our attention to Paul's private evangelization of Felix that resulted from this trial. Now, I thought that that was really interesting, and and I I, kind of probed a little bit as to why I think Luke ended with that. Um, and we'll talk about that after we read the passage, but uh, but first let us hear God's word and hear the passage in its entirety in Acts chapter 24. So here's Paul now in Caesarea after five days of being contained there. Luke says. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation... In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense you can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs." After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Potius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. That is the reading of God's word. So as I studied this passage, like I said, I was drawn to the conclusion Of Paul with Felix. And I don't really think it's a mistake that Luke concludes uh, this section with that. I think the point that he's making here with Paul's trial, and this is an important point, I think the point is that at the end of the day, it's not Paul who is really on trial, but it is those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation to sinners that are on trial. The gospel, in a very real sense, puts all sinners on trial before God because the gospel demands a response. The exclusive nature of the gospel is such that God presents it to sinners in such a way that to reject it or deny it or be indifferent to it is a sentence of condemnation. The gospel puts sinners on trial. The facts about Jesus cannot be ignored because you either believe them and believe on him and are saved or you reject him, deny him, ignore him and you remain condemned by God. You remain condemned by God which means that as sinners without Christ you are in a state of condemnation. And the gospel is a trial presented to you to receive Christ and be saved or to remain in darkness. This is how our Lord put it in John 3, 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so Paul has been testifying this of the Lord Jesus Christ to all sinners, that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, death, burial, resurrection, a sinner can be forgiven and justified before God. The gospel, in its presentation, puts sinners on trial. And in this context, we're going to see that in the Jewish accusations against Paul, there is embedded in their accusations and in Paul's response, embedded in that section is the, the Jews on trial through the gospel and their response and rejection of it. And then Luke ends with Felix being exposed and hearing the gospel and ultimately his apathy and rejection of it. In both cases, the trial here is not Paul. It is the Jews who reject the gospel, and it is Felix and Drusilla who also reject the gospel. And so for you who are here this morning, the the question for you as we go through this passage is really the question that they both faced, Jews and Felix. It is the question of in whom are you trusting to deliver you from that final day of judgment? The question is, to whom are you appealing for salvation and deliverance from condemnation and your sin? To whom are you looking to for hope and freedom and eternal life? That's the question that the gospel brings to you. Who is your hope and savior Who is your hope and Savior? So let's not forget that. Like Felix, like the Jews, we are being confronted in this passage with the truth of the gospel. And we are, like them, on trial. It's just as much for you to respond as it was for them. And so the account begins with the accusations of the Jews against Paul, and I'll show you how it's really about their rejection, even though Paul is standing before the court. So the first four verses are really uh, what popped out to me, and I want to draw your attention to in this section and how Tertullus, who, who's really speaking on behalf of the high priest Ananias and some of the Jewish elders who were made up of Sadducees and Pharisees who came, came down to Caesarea for this trial, um, notice how he addresses Felix. He, he addresses him, Tertullus is like the spokesperson, he's like the lead prosecutor, and, and they, they brought him in in order to present their case to Felix, and so he's speaking on their behalf, he's a spokesman for them, and, and he addresses the court. And in one sense, yes, it's a typical way in which you would approach a judge in a court, of law in the ancient world. Uh, you show respect, you try to obtain favor with the court, and so he, there's a lot of flowery and flattery given um, in, in his approach. And in our context, you know, you might begin by saying your honor, or you ask may it please the court if I, or may I approach the bench? And so there's a certain sort of um, common, common approach here in Tertullus's address of Felix. But there's actually something more in this exordium he offers here. And I think what we see here is a picture of just how far these Jewish um, people have fallen from God and his plan for the redemption of Israel. So you'll notice how Tertullus he attributes peace to Felix. He attributes foresight to him. He attributes excellence or glory to him. He attributes reforms for Israel to Felix. And then note how this is coupled with an all-gratitude and a plea to the kindness of Felix. That's, that's quite an appeal, right? It's rather thick. But in reality, it's rather hypocritical because when you realize that the Sanhedrin actually hated Felix, and they saw him as a corrupt leader, you begin to realize that in this presentation, there is a lack of integrity and hypocrisy on the part of the Jewish nation as they address Felix. They hate Paul and the gospel he is preaching so much that they overly flatter and appeal to Felix for justice. They appeal to a man's offer of peace, foresight, excellence, reforms, and kindness, and they give their heart of gratitude to this man. And so Felix is probably on the inside. I think he's probably laughing. He's probably thinking, boy... They, they really want to win me over knowing that this isn't genuine. And so you see in this exordium that they're making their appeal to the wrong judge. They appeal to man, but it is through Jesus that God has offered true peace and wisdom. They appeal to the excellency of Felix, but it is through Jesus that we see excellency beyond compare. We see the glory of God incarnate. They appeal to the reforms of Felix and offer gratitude to him on behalf of Israel, appealing to his kindness. But it is through Jesus, the Messiah, that the loving kindness of God to redeem sinners and to reform them for his own glory is revealed. It is only to Jesus that thanksgiving and gratitude belong, but they offered it to Felix. They should have been making this appeal to the Messiah that Paul was proclaiming, but instead they come before this court and they seek to condemn the messenger. They reject the message and the offer of salvation in exchange for a judgment against it. And so in their introduction, we see that their faith, as opposed to the faith of Paul and the believers Paul represents, was placed in man and not God. The exordium says a lot about where they stand before God in this trial. They accuse Paul of subverting God's plan of redemption, but it is they who reject it and appeal to another for confirmation. And so the accusations being leveled against Paul as a plague, that is to say he's a pest, um, the accusations that he's stirring up riots among all the Jews, that he's a ringleader among the sect of the Nazarenes. They, they referred to early believers as the Nazarenes and the sect of the Nazarenes because Jesus came from Nazareth and they were following Jesus. Their accusation that he is trying to profane the temple, they're not only false accusations, but they're really secondary matters when it comes to this trial. Their problem is not with Paul, it is with their hearts before God that they loved darkness rather than the light. Their hatred ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ is what is being revealed here. And so Paul gets right to it in his response in verse 10 to 21. You'll notice that he not only defends himself against their false accusations, but he takes the opportunity to once again bring the gospel before them, to put them on trial once again with the truth. Paul used every context and understood how to bring it back to the main issue. And so he does begin by first dismissing the trumped-up accusations against him. He notes, he says, I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days. You know this, Felix, where I went to the temple to worship. He's saying, Felix, consider the, the amount of days. If I was in Jerusalem for 12 days and... They arrested me and put me in prison for one of those days. And then for five days, I've been in prison here in Caesarea. That leaves six days for me to do all of the things that they are accusing me of doing, Paul says. That's absurd. I don't don't have the time even to do what they're accusing me of doing in six days. And furthermore, Paul goes on, Felix, when they found me there, they did not find me disputing with the crowd or stirring up anyone to anger, either in the temple, synagogue, or in the city itself. If you simply and honestly review the situation, it would reveal that they have no evidence to back their accusations. And so he says in verses 19 to 20 that Jews from Asia who began this uproar were not even here Felix to testify and substantiate the accusations. So he's basically dismissing it in this court of Roman law. He's saying these are false and these are trumped up accusations. And so at this point in verse 14, Paul turns his attention to the heart of the matter, And it comes down to the truth, and it always comes down to the truth of regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you say about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is? This is the trial. This is the trial presented to you. Who do you say that the Lord Jesus Christ is? What is your response to him and his person and his work? And so Paul, in verse 14 He turns to Felix, and he says, Felix, trumped up charges. And he says, but this I confess to you, that if I am guilty of anything, it is that I worship God according to the word of God given to his people, and I believe what was written in that word. Paul says, they are calling it a sect, That's some kind of aberration of Judaism, but it is the way of salvation, the way that God revealed to Israel for them to be saved. In other words, Paul is saying, Felix, I am simply faithfully following what Judaism has always pointed to, following Jesus is not a deviation from Judaism. Following Jesus is following the fulfillment of it. Following Christ and accepting him as Savior is true Judaism. His hope was in what God had promised. And Paul says, I actually have the same hope in God that these men who are accusing me claim to have. They themselves believe that there is a day of judgment coming where both the just and the unjust will be resurrected to give an account before God. They themselves believe that God alone should be worshipped. They themselves believe that his word should be believed. And they themselves believe that God had promised in the Old Testament to deliver his people. All of that is the hope that Paul says, I have and I share with them. None of what I have said or done is in opposition to Judaism. And so the high priest and some of the Sanhedrin were there. uh, The Sadducees were there among the Sanhedrin. And he says, I have the same hope. If anyone is guilty among the Jews of leading people astray, Felix, creating a sect and profaning the temple and God's way of salvation, it's not me. It's my opponents who are rejecting what God had promised in the law and the prophets regarding God's deliverance for his people. And so Paul says, I've always lived this way with a clear conscience toward both God and man. In other words, He's saying, I have been living in light of the hope God had given to his people and in light of the coming judgment. And then he demonstrates that in verses 17 to 20. It wasn't him who started the riot, it was Jews from Asia. And then Paul says in verse 21, again, this gets to the heart of it. If there is one thing I did, if there was one crime for which they can charge me, Paul says it's this, that when I stood among them, I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. When Paul said that to them, they immediately you'll remember, shut him down and turned off the switch. And they said, we do not want to hear any more about the resurrection of the dead. And the resurrection of the dead that Paul has in mind here is not just a resurrection for judgment, like he said earlier, but the resurrection in view here is the resurrection of the dead in regards to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead for the forgiveness of the sins of his people and their deliverance. That's what Paul has in mind when he made that statement. He says, that is why they hate me. They reject the resurrection of the dead in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what this is all about, the resurrection unto life that comes through faith in the promised Messiah and belief in his gospel. Paul embraced it. They rejected it. The hope of Israel is directly related to the reality of Christ and his resurrection. Paul unpacks that in his letters. You do realize that your hope as a Christian and as a believer is directly tied to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because Christ rose from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, so too all those who die in him will be made alive. Our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself, even death. That's the hope we have. And Paul would have told them this if they didn't shut him down. They begin to bicker and to fight about the hope of Israel and the resurrection. This was the issue Paul says they had with me, that I proclaimed a resurrection of the dead through Jesus as the Messiah. And so the Jews are on trial, and Paul says they rejected their Messiah. And so then it's at that point that Luke tells us that Felix who had a rather accurate understanding about the way, which means the gospel that Christians proclaim, he put them off. That is, he dismissed them and he adjourned the trial. Felix understood enough about what Paul was saying, but he, wanted, he didn't want to get into this theological debate between Jews and Paul he wasn't he was there to enact Roman justice according to the law and so Felix I think he knows at this point that the Jews have no real case against Paul but nonetheless he wants to wait for Lysias to give an account of what happened and so typical politician let me push off a hard decision wait for someone else to make the decision. So he pushes it off, and he says, Lysias will come down, and I'll make my decision. And so he gives Paul these orders and the centurions to keep him in custody, to have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from meeting his needs. And, and then Luke turns our attention to the evangelization, evangelization of Felix. And Paul is given this opportunity to proclaim faith in Christ to this governor and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, He's a representative of the most powerful empire in the world, and now Paul puts him on trial with the gospel. And just like the Jews, Felix will be found guilty of rejecting it. Luke goes on to tell us that after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, and he sent for Paul to speak with him. And so Paul takes the opportunity to speak with them of faith in Christ Jesus. He speaks to them of the hope of God and salvation in his name, in other words. And part of the gospel presentation included speaking to them, Luke says, of righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And the implication in that is that like all sinners, Paul, as he's sharing the gospel with Felix and Drusilla, is explaining to them that they lacked both righteousness and self-control. The gospel presentation that puts us on trial as sinners is a proclamation that you sinner lack righteousness and self-control and good works. The gospel begins by saying, there is bad news for you, Felix and, Drusilla. and the bad news is that you are full of iniquity and sin and rebellion. Before you can speak of faith in Christ, you must reason about righteousness and self-control. And Felix and Drusilla feel the weight of their guilt before God. And Paul presents to them the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Felix and his response is very telling, isn't it? You see, after he hears Paul's gospel presentation, after he hears about faith in Christ and the forgiveness of sins and their guilt before God, Felix represents all those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us that after Paul reasoned with them, what does it say? It says, Luke says Felix was alarmed. Why was Felix alarmed? Felix was alarmed because Felix understood that what Paul was testifying to is that there is a day of judgment coming for you, Felix. And that day of judgment says that when you come before the throne of the divine tribune, that you will be found guilty. You will be found to be in sin. both you and your third wife, Drusilla, will be found to be guilty. And so Felix is alarmed at the thought of this coming judgment And he's alarmed at the thought of his inability to be declared innocent. Makes one uncomfortable, doesn't it? And as the gospel is presented to you this morning, as we are being put on trial by the gospel, the question that you have to face and that I have to face is, apart from Christ as Savior you need to be alarmed. If you have not accepted Christ as Savior, as Felix didn't, you need to be alarmed at what awaits you. If your heart has not already been hardened to the truth of the gospel, just understand that there is a judgment and a condemnation coming. And you know in your heart that you are guilty before God, do you not? You know it. You know in your heart that you are a sinner, that you are guilty, your conscience reveals it to you, and like Felix, inside you are alarmed at the reality of your guilt before God all sinners know it. But what is really interesting is that he wasn't only alarmed, I think, at the reality of his guilt, but I think he was also alarmed at the implications of Paul's message of righteousness and self-control to him. So think of it this way. He's hearing I'm guilty and he's hearing that God calls people to live a righteous and a holy life. And as a sinner who is living for himself, I think Felix is also troubled and alarmed by the fact that if these things are true, it means that I can't continue to live the life that I want to live. And so the gospel confronts Felix of his guilt, and it confronts Felix with the demand that the Lord Jesus Christ makes on your life. And that really is the struggle of most people you share the gospel with. You point them to Christ, and ultimately their response is either, I'm not guilty. I I don't want to hear about the coming judgment. Put them away. I don't want to hear about what God requires of me and my life to be lived before him. I don't want God to encroach in any way in my life. That's the sinner's response. The sinner says, God, you do not have a say over me, and you do not belong in my presence. And so Felix pushes off the thought, and he pushes it off for another day, and he tells Paul, go away for the present. Now, when sinners do that, when we did that as sinners before coming to Christ, one of the things you realize, and if you're not in Christ now and you're you're not saved, I I will tell you that The reality is is that there is something that is keeping you from fully coming to embrace and accept Christ as your Savior. There's some sin, whatever that sin is, I don't really know what it is. But there are sins and there are sins of pride and there are sins of physical acts and there are sins of thoughts. There is something that a sinner clings to that he ultimately loves more and idolizes that they will not let go because they do not want to be confronted with leaving that idol that they love. And in the case of Felix, One of the things that Felix, Luke goes on to note here, one of the things that Felix could not stand to think of parting with was his love of money and his love of power and his love of personal favor of people. And and specifically the Jews. He would rather go to judgment, clinging to the things of that he loved in this world, rather than clinging to Christ. And why do I say that? Is because after Felix is alarmed, and he says, "Go away for the present." He says, "When I get an opportunity, I will summon you." And then verse twenty-six says, Luke says, at the same time. He hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius and Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison for two years. For two years, he heard the gospel. For two years, Paul proclaimed Christ to Felix. For two years, he invited Felix to repent, to come to Jesus, to be forgiven of his sins. And for two years, Felix wanted money in order to release Paul. That was his sin. He had many sins, but that was his love. He he refused to come to Jesus because Felix had these desires in this world that trumped the desire to be forgiven. What a missed opportunity. It is such a sad reality for sinners when they time and time again reject the offer given by God to forgive them and to redeem them. If you're here this morning and you haven't come yet to embrace Christ as your Savior, you understand that today, the Lord says, is the day of salvation. And you understand that tomorrow is not promised to you. You may leave this building today and walk out these doors having heard the gospel presented to you, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that you are guilty before God, and he has given himself to forgive you of your sin and to pay the price that you deserve. And that he rose again from the dead in order to make you right before God. And if you believe on him, you will be saved. And you hear that, and today you may hear that message and you may walk out that door and you may go into your car and drive to wherever it is you're going. And the moment you pull out of this lot, you may get hit by a semi-truck. The minute you walk out that door, you may be struck with a heart attack. The point is, it's not promised to you to hear this gospel message tomorrow, tomorrow. Felix had it given to him for two years. Do you think Felix became, it became easier and easier for Felix to come to Christ the older and the older he got? Or do you think it became harder? It becomes harder. It just does. The older you get, the harder your heart gets. The older you get, the more enslaved to your sins you become. And it is not often, it does happen by God's grace, but not often people come to faith in Christ at an older age. Tomorrow is not promised. And in fact, I was reading one commentary that I thought was really, um, it was really good. It was, it, he actually spoke about, um, an evangelistic um, e- event that took place in a church where I think it's Iron Sight. Um, he had the group on the congregation and it was a big congregation of like 3,000 people. And And he said, how many of you are saved? And like half the congregation rose up, 1,500. And then he said, how many of you were Um, saved before or after you turned 20 and then a significant I I think half of the half of them sat down how many of you were saved after the age of 30 and more sat down after the age of 40 and more sat down after the age of 50 and by the time he got to the age of like I think it was uh, 60 I think there were only I may be wrong here, but I think it was something like five people standing. Today is the day of salvation. It was the day of salvation for Felix, and Felix rejected it. And my, I beg you this morning, don't reject Christ. He is your only hope. Like I said in the beginning this morning, The trial before us is do we believe and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope of deliverance? What hope do you have of being found righteous before God on your own? Your life isn't righteous enough. I'll conclude with this, okay? Your money is of no value before him. Your power in this life has no sway over him. Your friends cannot come to your defense. Your lineage is of no value. Your idols are impotent. They are no gods at all. To whom will you appeal for deliverance when standing before God? There is only one, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He can stand in your place and be your mediator between you and God. The Lord Jesus Christ offers you his own righteousness The Lord Jesus Christ offers you the value of his precious blood shed on your behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ offers you the power of his resurrection from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ offers you his friendship and his divine defense. The Lord Jesus Christ offers you to be a part of his holy family and to enter his eternal kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ offers you to freely come into the presence of the true and the living God. He offers this to you according to his divine grace and mercy, and it costs you nothing. It costs you nothing, and it belongs to those who place their faith in him. Will you do that today? The Lord Jesus says he will not cast you out. For us, beloved, who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now invited because he has done this for us to freely come to his table to celebrate and to remember what it is that he has done to save us and to remember that our only hope is in him. Our only hope is in the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a hope that you can rest in. Isn't that good news? You can rest and know that Jesus Christ has done it all. And so if you're here visiting with us and you have come to Christ and received him as Savior, I want to invite you to partake of this celebration at the Lord's table. This is for you. If you've you've received him, you've been baptized, you are a a part of a a church family, uh, this communion is for you to participate. But I will also say this, that if you haven't come to faith in Christ and you're not sure and you're unsure whether or not you, have, you are saved or redeemed or you know you're not saved and not redeemed, then I would exhort you not to partake. This is not for those who would demean and diminish the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is for those who believe and are saved. And so with that, I invite Rory to, to, to come up, and we will, one row at a time, uh, come up and receive uh, the communion, the, the juice and the bread, and then we will take it together. And so I would just ask you to, in your hearts, go before the Lord, confess your sin, give him thanksgiving, uh, rejoice at our Lord's table that he is coming for us. So let me pray for the elements and then um, examine your own hearts and come and receive. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the blessing of the gospel and the good news that Jesus Christ alone saves and he has come to save those who place their faith and their hope in him. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave your body In place of ours and you shed your blood in place of ours that you gave us your righteousness when what we really deserved was your judgment thank you lord jesus for inviting us to your table for bringing us into your kingdom for calling us your children for promising to us that you will one day come and take us home to be with you and that you will resurrect our bodies from this ground and give us new bodies fit for glory and eternity in heaven. Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return and to your coming. We pray that you would bless this bread and you would bless this uh, juice, that you would encourage our hearts. As we remember you and what you have done for us, it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Through the Spirit, we give you thanks.